Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Welcome to another episode of Seen Any Good Films Lately. Well, have you? I have. I remember going to see Julie Christie. The first moment, I think, I looked at a screen beauty and was gobsmacked. It's a question of life or death and how it can change their life. It can change some destinies. I've got two great guests today. You heard there, Roland Joffe and Nabil Ayush here to talk to me about their movies and their inspirations. Ennio Morricone is the subject of a new documentary that's out now, which I've been talking about for a few weeks on this show. And one of the talking heads in it is Roland Joffe. So I thought we should find out more about that wonderful Morricone score for Roland's film The Mission and hear about Roland Joffe's life in movies from the killing fields to the Palm d'Or. And at Cannes last year was Casablanca Beats, or in French, Eau et Fort. It's a lovely film from Morocco about kids learning hip-hop at a community centre. I talked to its director, Nabil Ayouch, about rap, Arab folk music, and putting on a show. So let's get right into it. Ennio is a pretty straight-up documentary directed by Giuseppe Tornatore of Cinema Paradiso fame. But its access and its uh, exhaustive treatment of its subject is non-pare. There's Ennio Morricone and it's frank and he's forthright and it's lengthy. Shot uh, just before his death, uh, I would say. Uh, a really uh, open look back at his own career and the lineup of guests is outstanding, from Quentin Tarantino and Bruce Springsteen to John Williams, Hans Zimmer, Quincy Jones and Clint Eastwood. Yeah. There's also Roland Joffe, the director for whom Ennio wrote the score to The Mission, the 1986 film that starred Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons in the South American jungle by Iguazu Falls and which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. That's Gabriel's oboe from The Mission, one of the classic themes composed by Morricone. And when I spoke to Roland Joffe from his home in Malta, I asked him how does one approach the great Morricone? And do you just ask him, you know, to write one of the most famous movie scores of all time, please? I mean, in a way, by implication, that's what you always do. When we showed any of the, the movie for the first time, I didn't sit and watch it with him. When I came back into the studio at the end of the screen, I couldn't see him. There was nobody there. And I thought, oh my God, he left. And then I realised he'd slumped down in the seats so that his head was partly sort of hardly above the level of the seats. And he got up and he was in tears. And I thought, oh, well, that, that's a good sign, I think, unless he hated the movie and it's made him cry. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I can't do this. You, you don't need music. This film should be silent. I just use the Marcello, but any music's going to ruin the movie. 
And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't think that's true any other. And he said, no, no, I know. Believe me, Roland, I'm telling you, this film is so powerful, music will just mess it up. And he left very sweetly, very kind. He was a lovely man. And I remember talking to the producer, David Putnam, and saying, oh, I think that went a bit wrong. <laughs> David said, well, wait and see, you know, let's see what happens. About two weeks later, my telephone rang, and it was Ennio on the phone. And he said, um, he spoke mostly Italian. He said, Rolando, I have people who idea. I've got a little idea. I've just been thinking about your film. I've got a little kind of thing. Can I just... Can I just play something for you or actually sing something for you? And he went, ba, 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 bum. Da, dee, da, 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 dee, da, da, and he sang it as bad as I do. But <laughs> you felt it, you know, you, you felt that he found the soul of the film. And I was like delighted. And I said, yeah, that, that, I think that's going to be fantastic. So are you sure? And I said, yes. Yeah. OK, let me have a go. From there, it just developed. That's extraordinary. So when he saw the film, did he not see it with a temp track or anything like that? He just saw, I mean, it's quite a long film to have no music on at all. There was temp sound, obviously, and the only thing we had put on it was Marcello's oboe concerto because we uh, Jeremy actually played that because we needed something for the Indians, indigenous yeah. population. So, so Jeremy, plays the, oboe, Jeremy plays the oboe, does he? Well, he played it to a recording, but he learned the keying and how to do it and lesson. I mean, in actual fact, a sharp-eyed observer would notice that actually he's playing the oboe the way he's keying is actually is probably going to be more Marcello than it is any of but um, you know, anyway, tried to kind of compensate for that as much as he could. But the point I'm making really is that in a composer, if something deep happens with the, his connection with the movie, what he'll provide you with is the soul of the movie. Music is the, is the soul of the movie. If you imagine the images of the body, then the music is, is the, the soul. And I'll tell you why I think that is. It's generally known that blind people are not prone to paranoia in the same way that deaf people are. And it's a very interesting exercise. You try blotting out all the sound. So you have no sound input. Mm. And very, very quickly, you start losing orientation and people get irritated. And we rely on sound in ways that we don't think of. And it may be, I don't know, it's because sound is so important to us. But that means that that's one of the reasons I think that music can instill an image, a still image with the most amazing spirit. And then the repetition that scores have, that music has, that builds. So the music is reminding you as you're watching the scenes you've seen before, the consequences of actions. You know, music is like a spiritual rope that ties the images together. Do you think there was something in the material that connected with uh, Ennio Morricone? Because... Uh, of course, at the, at the part of this documentary that we're looking at the, his career overview, you know, it, it's not obvious what will spark the best out of Morricone. It could be Cinema Paradiso, where it's the memories of movies, or it could be a, a Western where he sees uh, new sounds to bring into a sort of classic classic sort of setting. What was it about the mission that inspired what, what many people feel is one of his great works and one of the great soundtracks in film history? That. I mean, he would all say to me that he thought the mission was the greatest film score he composed, you know, which is rather wonderful. Mm. What I think inspired Ennio actually was something quite difficult to express. The word we use for it is kind of humanity. I think if Ennio saw in a character or in a story something about human beings struggling with life, I think that's what connected him. You know, that's what connected him. Remember, he was born at a time when the war wasn't that long over. So struggle was in people's vernacular. You know, people, most people in Europe had had terrible five, six years. And I think that that imbued that generation. Oh, my God, you know, we, we have to share what we have in common more than actually erect barriers to what dif different differentiates us. So I think what 
Ennio was touched by always was a spiritual element because it was quite religious in a, in a quiet kind of a way. But more than anything, I was humanity. So even in those, those Westerns, you know, the spaghetti Westerns, he would detect in Eastwood maybe a glint of humanity. You know, there's someone here that is suffering something. It may be expressed with ponchos and guns. And I think that's what he responded to. And I think in our film, he responded to the theme of redemption, mm -hmm. but also the idea that you could play out your personal life, but your personal life's in the middle of a whole political thing that may require all kinds of things. So I think he was touched by that. Yeah. And I think he was touched by the fact that at the end of the film is an image of a little girl picking a violin out of the water. And I think that really touched him, that the film was also saying, Music communicates humanity. The um the the success of the mission is is, is quite extraordinary. Uh, I think it, it came after the Killing Fields for you, didn't it? it was that there was there was the one and the two you did with David yes, Putnam, yes, Killing Fields, and then uh, and then yeah. and then the mission. And Can is coming up, and I think it always whenever I you know go go back to Cannes every year and I, I the mission is one of those films that sort of still still reverberate uh, around the croisette um but get me in the mood for Cannes what was it like going going and winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes with a film like this it was a very moving time in a way but it also seemed quite unreal do you know what I mean it seemed you know it was a weird dream as life went into slow motion I was quite glad to get away from it and get back to what I love which is the stuff the nitty-gritty of making a film the dealing with the actors, the finding the story. I mean, all that I love. I'm not so good at the sort of social red carpet side of it. I always feel like a bit of a blot on the carpet. <laughs> well, I mean, it was great for British film. I mean, we, we don't even have any films in competition uh, this year. What was, I mean, and the 80s is often seen. I mean, 86 was yours. 84 is a, seen as a low point in British cinema history, which is when I think I mean, you, you, you were coming out with Killing Fields. There were, there were very few films being made. Uh, tell me about how, trying to get the, the, something like The Mission together with, you know, a wonderful cast, one, one of the great British producers, but in a landscape that, you know, British cinema, well, as, as Truffaut said, it, it is a bit of an oxymoron. That was rather cruel of Truffaut, I think, yeah. and of course, rather French remark. <laughs> yeah. um, the tradition of British cinema was kind of domestic. I mean, it's done other things as well. There was a sort of domestic thing to it. And, and I'm thinking of like Tony Garnett and Ken Loach, which is really where I kind of began to learn some of my techniques from the kind of work that they were doing. I was very intrigued to import that to, to, to Latin America. I thought, my God, if I, if I could bring that quality of observation to Latin America and also to history and treat it in the same way and mix up personal life and political life and social life, which I think is the mix we all kind of live in one way or another. This would be a very exciting thing. And the, the great thing about David Putnam as a producer was that he, he would give you free reign. I mean, he would kind of say, look, I want the best of you. That means I don't want to limit what it is you want to do. <clears throat> I want to find out what you want to do. And I want to, I want to find ways of allowing that to happen. I mean, he was a remarkable producer. He really was. And when he gave up producing, and there was nobody sadder than me, I think. Yeah, me too. Um, I keep, I keep, every time I see but, him, I say, come on, come back, do more. Yeah, I know. I say the same thing. He doesn't listen. He's, <laughs> he's got more interest in education. I, I think that your question answers why that was. I think that David began to feel that he was on a kind of losing wicket. And I think he sensed that cinema was evaporating in front of our eyes. It was a long evaporation. And it's true. I think we're at an odd stage. I think with the development of the virtual world we're about to see a new kind of cinema if you think of the first films and that lumiere made which was the train coming into a station compared to the theater at the time it's quite interesting the theater at the time was spending a lot of money on trying to create realistic effects you know melodramas realistic effects and ships that burnt and anything they could think of and suddenly people went and they sat in this dark room and a train appeared to come right out of the station and run them over and they went for that because they went for the sensation it was more immersive, was more realistic, was the word they used, but it was more immersive. 
And I think we're at that stage now where movies, big movies are spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to give people a kind of immersive effect. Whereas what's crept up, snuck up without them even realizing is this new world, which is going to suck us all into it for good and bad, which is immersion. And I think we're going to find new ways of telling new cinema with immersive technologies. I'm a, becoming a producer now uh, as well, Roland. So, uh, and, and obviously right. David Putnam is one of the, the, the sort of you know, touchstones of uh, as, as, a, as a gentleman who I like very much as well, but uh, as a producer, interesting to hear how he worked with you. What, what advice would you give me as a producer? Uh, what, what, would, what, what do the best producers do? I think the best producers think of themselves as kind of team leaders. I mean, one of the things I noticed with David was David knew out of a crew of 300, David knew all their family histories. He knew if anybody in, in their family was ill. He knew what was going on. He was very kind of human in his way of behaving. So quite often when he came on the set, he wasn't really watching what I was doing. He he was kind of talking to everybody else. And I realized what he was doing was seeing what needed, looking after. So as a presence, David was a very uniting presence. But that went with a wonderful way of saying to you, you're directing this. You have my confidence. He might make a comment after night. Why did you do that? But he would never say, do this. It was always, go with your heart. What, what is that? I've, I'm working with you because I want to know what you feel about what you're doing. And that gives people tremendous confidence. Remember, that was only my second movie. And David always felt like a companion. I remember once when I was in the Iguazu Falls, and I'd been climbing around for days trying to find shots, what we're going to do, sometimes in, in danger of tumbling to my imminent death. <laughs> I got a telex, or telexes in those days from Warners, and it said, uh, you are forbidden to shoot on the Iguazu Falls, come home, or some such. I looked at the telex and kind of dropped in the waste paper basket. <laughs> About two hours later, I got a call from David, and he said, hey, Ro, and I said, yeah. he said, um, did you get that telex from Warners? And I said, yeah. And he said, what do you do with it? I said, well, I threw it in the bin. And he said, yeah, so did I. Good for you. Let's pretend we never got it. And because we knew that that was a panic that wasn't necessary. And that was a great thing with David. I mean, I remember when we were doing the evacuation of Phnom Penh, which we had to do on a railway track on a Sunday, because we couldn't stop the um, Thai railway system from operating. But on a Sunday, the trains ran every 40 minutes, not every 15. So we had 40 minutes to set the shot up completely, get it shot, get everybody off the track with enough time to not be on the track for the, for the train. The line producer was to totally against my doing this because he said it was too dangerous, we'd never be able to do it, blah, blah. David listened to my plan, watched the whole the signaling system we had, saw the whole thing, he said, great, that's what we're going to do. And on the day when we did it, we were on our kind of fifth take, and it was right towards the end of the day, and I see David setting off on the track with a white hat. And I said, well, David, where are you going? So I'm going to stop the train. I said, David, those trains are going at 100 kilometers an hour. They're not going to stop for you. They're not going to stop for an inspiration of white hat. Come here. And you had to kind of literally drag him back and make sure he sat in the chair and did not march off trying to stop a Thai train. Otherwise, there would have been no David Putnam. <laughs> um, it's, it's love, personal engagement, and the ability to give people freedom in a structure. I think that's what he taught me. That's excellent advice. I shall, I shall do that. Everything, everything but the white hat, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. What was the first yeah. film you ever saw at the cinema, Roland? Well, I saw a combination. I, I, when I was young, I used to go to Saturday morning cinema for children at the Odeon um, Kensington High Street, which was absolute chaos, <laughs> um, including the manager sometimes coming on the stage in the middle of the thing and saying, if you don't sit down, I think it was Northern for some reason, if you don't sit down, this whole show is going to stop. But it was kind of wonderful. And the chaos and the running around and the sort of stuff that was going on and the ice creams being lobbed from side to side, that was all part of the film. So I really enjoyed that side of it. And then I went with my stepmother to the cinema once. And I was really young. It was probably the very first thing I saw. 
But I do remember it was an Alan Ladd movie in which he was playing a sort of very potent cowboy. He was only very small, but he, to me, he seemed to be huge. But I didn't see much of the film because my stepmother was holding me on her lap. And she'd forgotten that when you hold a baby on your lap, very often their head is in the wrong way. So the first bit of cinema I saw was just a flickering light with the cigarette smoke coming out of the projection box. And I thought, I quite enjoyed that. So obviously I was a sucker for cinema. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's almost as romantic as, as as what was going on. It kind of been Shane, you were probably too, too young. I don't want to insult your age, but I don't know what year Shane was, but uh, it could it might have been Shane, right, not it? Might have been. Can't remember. I have a vague idea it was playing a Mountie, but I might have that wrong. <laughs> uh, um, and then and then we sometimes would go around to friends who had a, a once every two weeks a little man would come around and he'd unfold a screen in the sitting room and play silent movies Charlie Chaplin Buster Keaton so I recently saw a restored version of Buster Keaton as the cameraman and it's absolutely adorable and it it plays as well today as it did then I watched it with four thousand people in in the main square in Bologna with a live orchestra which made it, by the way, the live music again. And you just saw, oh my God, this is cinema. Everybody in cafes, everybody sitting on the ground on chairs, chatting, but engaged in the film. And there was a freedom to that I thought was wonderful. What was the film that made you think, I want to be a filmmaker? The film that almost changed your life in terms of setting you onto this path? I think there were two of them. One <laughs> definitely was Bridge Over the River Kwai. I went and saw that the Odeon Leicester Square with my step-grandparents and sitting in the circle. And I remember being absolutely transported. But, but I didn't think, oh, I want to be a director. I just thought, oh, what, this, is, this is what life should be. You know, this is the richness of it was fascinating. And I think what it made me feel was that I wanted to be an adventurer. It made me feel that we live on this tiny planet, but my God, this planet is rich and full of experience. And I want to find something takes me around the world all the time. And I thought, you know, should I become a diplomat? Should I become a spy? Should I become a mercenary? Should I join the, the French Foreign Legion? I wouldn't have been any good at any of those things. And by kind of fluke and luck, I found the cinema, which in a way is a bit like joining the Foreign Legion. Yeah, well, it's, it's like a, a being a director is like all of those things at, at, at various points. Yeah. I find that amazing that the Bridge Over the River Choir, you're watching it, uh, David Lean directing it in, in Thailand on the railways, which you talked about with David Putnam and you, you shooting, end up you yeah. shooting it in, 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 on Thai railways a bit later. And David Lean, who, who worked with Robert Bolt a bit later, who wrote your screenplay to, for The yeah. Mission. So that that pretty much did, uh, you, you, you set out and, and, and kind of, you know, pulled the strands of River Choir together for, for, for much of your career. I think that did happen in, in a, a strange way, no, no, and, and the idea of, you know, the, a film going to, a, to another country and inhabiting that country and the kind of beauty that we, we didn't have anymore. You know, David Lean could turn up, look at the set because he wanted to shoot a sunset and say it wasn't good enough and go away again and wait a week to do that. We never had that. That had all, By the time I was making movies, that had all gone. And in fact, I remember working with Paul Newman once and he said to me, I don't know how you young guys, in those days I was a young guy, I suppose, don't know how you young guys managed to do this. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you have to do a scene in one day and in maybe three or four takes. He said, when we were doing Dutch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, we were shooting that scene where we have to jump out of a train. He said, we shot it all day and we did it. And then we looked at the rushes the next day and we thought, that's almost good. So we shot it again, improving. And then we looked at those and we thought, yeah, it's getting much better. So we shot it again. And we thought, ah, next time it's going to be great. We're, we're do and that's what we did. He said, we had five goes at it. And in those days, movies was set up in the idea that you worked it until you got it right. He said, and the problem for you guys is you can work it until until the budget says you can't. And that's true. Time, which is the most important thing in cinema, has become an asset almost nobody has. Yeah. 
what so you you said there were two films that were influential. One was River Kwai. What was the second one? Um, well, <clears throat> the second one w w was sort of a mixture of films. Really, I used to have some family in Italy, and I'd go to the little local cinema. In that local cinema, they would play all those Italian blockbusters of the time. I forget the names of the actors, but they had names like Silvio Massimo and all these kind of great stars. But the, the little cinema didn't really have a screen; it was painted wall. And so, when they projected these films, the films also projected on the side walls, also about a focus and on. But it became a sort of all-round experience. And the steps that led to the toilets actually were in the wall that was also the screen. So whenever there was a screen kiss, everyone went rushing to the toilet because you rush straight into someone's lips or whatever, and everybody would cheer in them. So I think it was just that sense of life that I got, which tied up with what I'd seen when I was a child, you know, Saturday morning cinema. Those are the things that really touched me. But set against that were, was going to see Throne of Blood, Kurosawa, in the classic Notting Hill Gate. Now, that was a completely different experience because there you sat in the hushed silence. The audience was reverent and you were like in the presence of a genius, quite obviously. And the images were luscious and extraordinary and, and detailed. So I always found myself wondering which of those cinemas I wanted to be in. And I think in the end, I, I found myself somewhere in the middle. I love spectacle. I, I love films that have a kind of grandeur. I love being in Calcutta, filming City of Joy, where every day was a battle and we had strikes and protests and <laughs> we were locked in the hotel because people accused us of murder. I mean, it was, and I have to say that was as much fun as, as anything. I mean, the shooting of the movie was an adventure on its own and that's what I love most, I guess. Mm. I can look back on that and think, whoa, those mm. were fun days. That's uh, the Patrick Swayze and Pauline Collins, isn't it, uh, City of Joy? Yeah, yeah, remember that very well. Yes. It's very interesting that you mentioned those those Italian cities, and then and, and then of course Morricone, maybe uh, two years after after working with you on the mission, did Cinema Paradiso, which 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 harks back to those those Sicilian days and the and the, the 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 picture being something immersive and people playing with that image and that wonderful theme that he he wrote for that movie. That was another bond I had with any. I think in a sense, I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood in Italy in this little village called Torre del Benaco on Lago di Garda, and in those days it was a very sort of basic village and it had again it had been through the war so all kinds of undercurrents of people who had done things people didn't really talk about them and so and so maybe had been a fascist and there were all these undercurrents nobody spoke about and but there was all this history and and i remember talking once to a pad to um contadini who was the transgender kind of peasant in a way but the worker who worked on the olive groves that part some of which belonged to the family i was with and and um I was saying, oh, these trees are so beautiful. And he held up his hands, which were gnarled and twisted, as twisted as the trees. And he said, yes, Roland, those trees are 350 years of giving my family hands like this. So he loved the trees, but he also hated them. And I, I loved all that element in life, that you could be torn, that life itself is complicated, and you love part of it and hate the other bit, or and everybody loves and hates different bits of it. And that's the whole human experience. And I think that gave me a vernacular that I could share with Ennio because he understood what I understood about village life mm. in Italy. Have you ever fallen in love at the cinema? I remember going to see Julie Christie in a little local cinema in Wallingford, which was near the boarding school I went to. I was probably 17, I think. It's the first moment, I think, I looked at a screen beauty and was... I can't find the words for it. I was gobsmacked. I was... I'd never seen anything so beautiful. I think I had to walk home trying to push my eyes back into their sockets. 
but as a, an essence of sort of beauty. But I realized what it was, was what she was conveying underneath it. The kind of mixture of vulnerability and strength that I have feeling, but I'm strong. That was my first real brush with what a female could be on, on screen. And in a way, something I wanted to catch in Scarlet Letter was this idea of the price women pay for being emotionally vulnerable without which life doesn't function, without which there's nothing in life. And yet women over the centuries have been tortured for expressing that. And I think I got that out of utterly for months and months and months, being totally in love with the screen image of Julie Christie. Mm. Do you know what film that was that she was, that, that, that was the one that you... I'm trying to think it was Darling. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense, yeah. I mean, she's, she's terrific in Darling. She's, she's amazing yeah. in Darling. And we, we do fall in love with her in Darling. That's, the, that's, the, that's, like, that's both her curse and her sort of purpose in the, in the film. But it, as you say, it is, it, it's a danger to her. On the yeah, I fall in love with yes. her. Uh, I think we fall in love all the time yeah. in the cinema, to be honest. Yeah, well, I, mean, I fall in love most <laughs> times I, I watch a film with someone on the screen at some point. <laughs> Well, good for you. Well, that says a lot about you. That's a great compliment, I think. I mean, I always say to audiences when they like something I've done, I say, look, it's not really me that did this. I've contacted something that's in you. If it wasn't in you, you wouldn't get anything out of the film at all. So it's a wonderful thing to meet people and think, oh, my gosh, the fact that you have this in you makes you wonderful people in, in, in my mind. But you understand the film isn't making people do that. It's just connecting up. And that's the power of film. Mm. But it, if it isn't there, the film can't connect up to it. Now, Roland, you've shot in some fantastic places. I'm just just remembering there your your, your career. What, what's your what's the fav What's your favourite location that you've that you've shot in, or that you've seen in the cinema? The most wondrous place. You know, cinema takes us to these amazing places without moving in our seat. What's what's the, what's the one that impacted you when you thought, "My God, that's a place." I mean, Iguazu for me in your film and in Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together is a is a spectacular place. What what for you is one? Yeah, well, Iguazu. Iguazu obviously wins hand down over anywhere that I've been, absolutely did. Wow. I think the other one actually was Calcutta. I think being on the streets in Calcutta and looking at a seething, extraordinary, dense, potent, struggling, poetic, angry, happy, ludicrous, smart mixture of people, so focuses you on humanity. And in a really interesting way, for instance, when you walk around in London, you're a bit sort of focused on either modern things that are going on or this kind of strange history of empire, you know, Britain taking the best out of things, getting rather wealthy on it, which is fine. But when you go to Calcutta, you're, you're imbued in life. You're not imbued in history. History is part of it, but it's not taken too seriously. So most of the most beautiful buildings are tumbling down or can't survive because the families are arguing with each other. But my God, it's alive at, at every level. It's as though... Western culture has got rather good at burying our most human aspects and pretending they're not there, which is a bit weird, really. But when you're in Calcutta, you're aware that, you know, in, there are some gaps where people are being buried and you can are being burnt and you can actually see that. And, and there's a monkey god coming out for a festival and there are people who are literally up close to starving on the pavement. But then there's somebody else who's dedicated to creator feeding them. There are people who are immensely wealthy. There are buildings that are ancient and Mughal about power that's long since gone, which is now being lived in by a nest of birds and foxes. It's, so the whole city is a poem to human life and what human life is like, where Iguazu itself is just a great poem to nature. 
without human beings at all, really. I think that's the difference. Yeah. Well, wonderful that you made a film that, that it did examine the colonial experience uh, at Igbazu in the mission. Uh, we, and we're talking about yes. Morricone. I want to ask you what, what your favourite screen musical moment is. It doesn't have to be from a musical itself, mm. but the use of music to go with image on screen. Do you have, what's, your, what's your most powerful or exciting or thrilling or danceable moment? Yeah, I think, funnily enough, well, I think the one that conveyed the most emotion to me was, funnily enough, was another David Lean film, is when that figure comes out of the mist in the desert, the kind of hallucinatory thing. And the music, extraordinary. if you take the music away from that scene, it's, it's not a dead image, it's an interesting image, but it's an interesting image. But when the music's there, you are engaged in an extraordinary way. And the fact that the music somewhere is precisely giving you an emotion where the image is making you work at what is it is a kind of extraordinary mixture, I think. It's Jarre, then, isn't it? Uh, Jarre, the music of uh, Maurice Jarre. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's extremely potent, I think. And then I think, oddly enough, West Side Story as a musical, I absolutely loved because I felt this was so inherent. You know, the music and the, and the story were absolutely unified. And it was exciting and was vibrant in those days. Absolutely, it was a world one didn't see, although it was in a world that one thought one was familiar with through images. And so I, I always thought as a musical, that was like really prime, where the energy and musical energy matched the energy of the people the film was about. Did you like the new one? Not as much, but then I think that's just because I didn't think it brought anything new. I thought it was just another version. I didn't really feel, oh my gosh, I'm looking at this in a completely new way. Mm. But... but I'd be a bias. A, I'm not a critic, and B, I was probably biased because I have such fond memories of the first one. Yeah. You know, so I was comparing. But the, not mu- fair the music is still Steven good. And the, the music's that, still good, and the, and the lyrics oh, are yeah. still good. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, they haven't gone away. Yeah. I, so I thought I, I found myself thinking, well, if they're still good, why on earth do we need to just change the modern images? What well, I haven't got anything out of that. Yeah, that was for me. That kind of thing. The studio says, yeah, let's do that with Stephen, and good on them. But it didn't. It, it didn't transport me anywhere yeah i don't suppose that people are going to start watching the new one instead of the old one they're going to still go back to the original because it's still good <laughs> you know it's still it, it hasn't been bettered i did like the yeah, screenplay. Okay. i love the screenplay to the new one i like that that's slightly more modern but yeah ultimately it's the it's the yeah. music and the lyrics that i came away humming and singing again and and i was doing that before yeah, exactly <laughs> uh roland exactly. absolute joy to to talk to you about uh, ennio morricone as well and uh, uh and your career thank you we can manage to get to get all all of that in if you if you listen to some morricone as you did when i mean you're you're part of the film the documentary about him do you, do you put on some Morricone? What, what do you turn to? Do you listen to The Mission? Are you allowed to do that? You listen to your... It's kind of your own work, but it's not your own work, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, well, I listen to The Mission. I do listen to The Mission. Um, the odd thing is The Mission sort of pursues you around... The, I've heard it in airports. I've heard it in shops. I've heard it one night in Valletta near where I live. I walk walking down the street and there's an oboe playing The Mission. And I'm like, what? And the streets are almost empty and there's a lone musician. I thought, my God, the Ennio sent this kind of deliberately. I don't think there's one Ennio I sit down and listen to. Most Ennio pieces that one listens to are engaging and are, are touching. So I don't think I, I... I play a lot of music because when I'm writing, I, I play music all the time. But then what happens is the music kind of blends in my head and I'm not even sure anymore what I'm listening to. <laughs> well, it's it's great to listen, to see so much Ennio in the documentary, Ennio. And, uh, and thank you for your time for, for this one. And thank you for, for being in, in, in Ennio. And I hope that the mission does, you know, continue to 
either haunt you, stalk you, uh, you know, <laughs> go with you because, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful achievement. And it's as if they, maybe you, you don't know that soundtrack's in your head as you're walking along and it's just stalking. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a very potent image <laughs> across it around is. your neck. <laughs> Ronan Joffy, thanks All very right, well, much. Lovely to talk to you. Good luck with the documentary. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Take Cheers. care now. Nice to see you. Thanks. NEO is out now and you can go to the excellent site of the distributors dogwoof.com and find out where to see it at home or in the cinemas. More music inspired drama now with Casablanca Beats, a hip hop musical of sorts, I guess. Set in a youth club and community centre in the Moroccan city of the title. And it stars a bunch of kids whose parents don't quite agree with this stage in their education, shall we say. It's a film with a big heart and big beats. And it's made by director Nabil Ayush. It's such a lovely and enjoyable and fresh film from the Arab world that I just had to find out more about the man who made it. Turns out that he's as warm and charming as his film. It's often the case with directors, I find. You can just tell that they've got a good heart from what's up on the screen sometimes. So I started by asking Nabil Ayush where the inspiration came from for making this inspirational new movie in Morocco. They wanted this film to be carrying a positive energy as they have a positive energy, you know. And it was important for that, that we see them watch uh, dancing, talking, expressing themselves through hip hop was the major art today for, for this youth. You know, the place of the word in the society, mm. especially as, we'll, as long as we come to talk about politics, about social issues or, or religious issues. And the, the, the body, you know, how, um, how a young girl, a woman can take a place in, in this public space through a body, moving a body in the streets. So this, these youngsters, I think they're, they're gi- giving me lots of hope in the future because they're so positive and because when they express themselves, they do it so frankly uh, with their words, where, where, with their bodies, where they dance. And th- that was important for me, this to appear in the film. You really captured it. I don't know how you got your cast. Were they people that you knew already because they visited the centre? Or and you, you, for a long time you thought, I need to put these people in a film? How, how did you get your cast together? Was there an audition process? I, I do love an audition montage in a film as well, where they kind of get the, get the crew together. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there was like a huge audition process all across the country. But to come back to the original class, that I had in front of me. And that's how it's supposed to be because I observed them for a year uh, on stage in the classroom with the teacher Anes to be sure that this would be my next film. So they were my source of inspiration. So it was fair to look for uh, people that could join the class. And 
actually one girl did uh, Zineb, the dancer, you know, on the rooftop mm -hmm. and, uh, at the end. But she's the only one. The rest of the group was so united and uh, so, let's say, harmonized that that finally I took the original class. <laughs> I'm, they're great together, all of them. Their faces fit. It's wonderful. I've been listening to the soundtrack uh, as well. OFR, it's called it in French, but loud and loud and clear, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you could say loud and clear. Out loud, loud. Out loud. Oh, yes, yes, out loud. Yes. Have Have they been hit hit songs in 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 Morocco? Will they be played on the radio? What, what's What's happened to that since since it appeared in Cannes uh, nearly a year ago? Actually, first of all, the release was a, a great moment because so many young girls and boys coming from the suburbs in the center of the city because they don't have cinemas in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So they come to the center of the city where they're not, not used to come to watch the movie. They were like shouting, uh, uh, clapping, crying sometime and uh, having the strong feeling that for the very first time, well, actually, that's what they told me, they would be represented on screen. Mm. So that was very moving moment, uh, probably as moving as the premiere in Cannes was with all the, all of them yeah, around it was beautiful around to see them. yeah yeah and 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 um and then uh we we did this soundtrack uh with uh with their words uh their lyrics the help of ns and two french hip-hop producer coming in city movement for two months to build the soundtrack there you know not in the studio in paris and and um and actually uh some of the songs like the one of Ismail and Mehdi, you know, when they, they dance uh, with all the bands uh, about the money, the one with the, yeah, that was a hit, for example. Is that Aliens? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah, those, those are the, the, the Aliens. Because actually today they, 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 are, they, they have built this group, you know, and uh, called the Aliens, and they, they are, to answer your question, they are doing some news tracks, video clips, uh, they work in the center also, like sound engineers. So all of the class, let's say half of them is working today in the center, in the foundation, as um, different uh, different uh, positions. What interests me quite a lot in your movie is the female element. You know, you had female rappers talking about um, sexuality, sexual equality. The, the how women are viewed in society and that's even stronger than I think we had obviously we had some fantastic female rappers from Moni Love and Salt and Pepper all the way up to to, to Missy Elliott and, and now but more important I think for these young Arab girls to speak about how they feel and casting off uh, it, it's a big fight for them to be accepted in you know as singers as dancers in this society it seemed to be quite a strong thread of your film, Nabil? It is because if you go back, let's say, six or seven years ago, there were no female rappers or dancers in Morocco or maybe in the Arab world. I mean, the girls in the center, they were obliged to hide themselves from their parents to come and to, to, to record or to, to dance on stage. So it was like something really kind of secret, you know? And now, since few years, they appear. And they, they, they sometimes appear also with their veil, as you can see in the film. 
And this is something really new because it's a kind of uh, emancipation and in the same time, revendication of their identity as a girl, as a woman, to say, yes, I'm here. And it's not because my father or my big brother or whoever, the society is telling me that I have to stay quiet, that I'm going to stay quiet. I have something to say, I have something to express, and I'm going to expressing it. And that's very new and very important the world to know it. Yeah. Did you have to encourage some of the girls that it was all right, that it was a safe space to express themselves with, with, with you in your filming, that they would be you know, looked after in this respect? I had to do it, though it didn't work all the time. Yes, because sometimes the parents are stronger than us. So we had to experience some bad moments, seeing some uh, girls obliged to leave the center. Mm. But yes, I would say that more and more we are doing this work on the ground with the fantastic teams of the Alizawa Foundation, opening those new centers. More and more, the parents are conscious of how important for their children to be there and less and less afraid are they. Because at the beginning, the parents were really afraid mm. that the children would become smarter than them. So they were like, oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, slow down. What are you teaching to our children over yeah. there? No, 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 no. But now things are changing slowly and uh, it becomes like a free zone for them so they can come uh, and uh, they can express themselves like probably nowhere else. And Casablanca Beats is in cinemas now and also available through Curzon Home Cinema. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Roland Joffe, to Nabil Ayush and to Kate Dawkins for putting us all together. There is just one more film to tell you about what I've seen. It's a pensive and beautiful wildlife documentary called The Velvet Queen, Snow Leopard, or in French, La Pantère des Neiges. It's about two filmmakers, Sylvain and Vincent, who are going off in search of this elusive creature in the Tibetan mountains. It's a film that rewards the patience. We're not talking David Attenborough here. It's really about man's search for something. Uh, and it's a film that rewards patience and is about rewarding your patience. It's got gorgeous scenery, some beautiful animals, some sort of remarkable bits of camouflage in there. And there's a soundtrack throughout from Warren Ellis and Nick Cave to keep you going through all those snows and long walks and long waits for something to happen. It's one of those breathy soundtracks, the sort of thing that they did with uh, the proposition uh, that were out back western all those years ago. And it's got that sort of grandeur. Uh, it's got a bit of invention. It's got a bit of thoughtfulness, as you'd expect from Nick Cave and the Bad Seed. So we'll go out with uh, something from the soundtrack of La Panthère des Neiges, The Velvet Queen. And here is Nick Cave and La Bette. See you later.